You are listening to episode 79 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest David Grant. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. I'm really excited and happy to have you listening to this episode today. And we have a great one for you with David Grant, who is the founder of Grant Training Systems. And I'm going to be talking with David about injury prevention and movement mechanics. David has a fantastic YouTube channel where he goes through a lot of different exercises to help tennis players be in better shape, uh, to play better tennis. And he also has some amazing experiences uh, working with some of the top players in the world. So I'm really, really happy to go through that and help you learn how you can improve yourself in your game. And so I don't want to delay the interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with David Grant. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm really excited to have David Grant on the show today to talk about injury prevention and movement mechanics. David is just an awesome guy. He has a lot of fantastic videos on YouTube, a lot of great content that you you should definitely check out. But to give you a little bit of a background on David, David is the founder of Grant Training Systems lifestyle and sports rehabilitation. And so GTS, which is what uh, you can call Grand Training Systems, is a sports performance-based company focusing on the education and training in the field of movement and mobility. And so David is a licensed athletic trainer and performance coach. He's also previously worked alongside uh, a legendary Pat Echeverry at the Harry Hopman Tennis Academy in Tampa. David also has worked with a host of amazing tennis players that you all know about, I'm sure, including Victoria Azarenka, Justine Hennen, Martina Hingis, James Blake, and Marty Fish, among others. I actually had James on my podcast, I think, uh, several months ago. David is also an adjunct instructor in Germany at the University of Tübingen, and he teaches students about the training, rehabilitation, excuse me, rehabilitation, nutrition, and political nature of working with pro athletes and professional teams. David also has been the Director of Athletic Performance for the Egyptian Tennis Federation, the Director of Athletic Performance for the Smash Tennis Academy, and a big shout out actually to Charlie Warner, a subscriber of of the uh, Tennis Files podcast who connected me with David for this interview. So David, uh, I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast. I hope that that bio was somewhat accurate at least, but I really am excited to have you on. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I'll just put out uh, quickly just for all the listeners that I actually, I told you I cut my tongue. I actually burned the tip of my tongue. So if I talk with a a bit of a lisp, it's because the burn is on the tip of my tongue. So pronouncing all of the words correctly actually hurts like hell. Oh, gosh. Well, I hope that, you know, I don't ask you so many questions that you end up not being able to talk for the rest of the day. But yeah, I'm like, we probably appreciate it, so don't, so don't worry about it. Huh? <laughs> cool, cool. Well, I'm really excited to dive in, man, because uh, we were talking before starting recording this episode, and uh, just that information alone uh, was really exciting to, to hear about and very interesting as well. So, David, first off, I see on your LinkedIn profile that you completed over 1,800 hours of internships uh, while in college. So how on earth were you able to do that? 
<laughs> yeah, that was pretty crazy, actually, because I basically worked full time at the same time. So when I was in my undergrad for sports medicine, athletic training, you had to do, oh, man, I believe it was 1200 internship hours with sports teams. And they were pretty strict with um, with how it works. So you'd have to be with women's men's contact, no contact, upper body, lower body specific. And that was, you were a tennis player. So we were the athletic training room where you would get your ankle taped and, you know, get the ultrasound on your elbow or whatever. And uh, yeah, so we were supposed to do about 1,250 hours. One of the advantages, or at least it was an advantage, I'm 37 now, so I graduated back a little while ago, but uh, was that University of Tampa was was a powerhouse in sports, but it was a small university. And a lot of times, if you can get that mix in a sports medicine program, it's perfect because if you're at like a, let's say University of Florida, for example, they're going to have million dollar athletes and they know they have million dollar athletes. So if you're a sports medicine student, you often will do your internships at like high schools and things like that because you can't really touch their players. But if you're at a small university, like I said, in Florida with a powerhouse sports teams, usually the the, the teams are so busy, they don't have a, enough athletic trainers so they really have to 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 depend on the students so by my freshman year you apply for the program you get accepted your second semester freshman year and then uh when it comes to like making bags of ice and you know i don't know what um kind of just stocking the training room getting the trainers the tape they need and really just watching everything that that counts as internship hours and like i said with short staff and you have multiple national championships coming out of your school like teams um yeah they put you to work right away so i got started early had a bunch of cool internship opportunities in the summer and then uh at the end of my at the end of my career at the end of my university my fourth year um we had a few students drop out so they were even shorter so uh, I was doing an internship with NFL Europe because they're based in Tampa. And I then picked up the internship for the baseball team where I was the second student athletic trainer because they were yearly national champions. So they had a little bit of a special program where they had a few more of us. So I was just I mean, I just couldn't stop logging hours. And by the end, I actually think it was over 2000. Wow, that's that's pretty sick, uh, David. And so I guess to back it up even further, like when did you first get your start in your career as a sports performance expert and fitness trainer? Or should I say, when did you first get that interest? And then where did you go from there? That's a good question because I, in uh, my, my sports medicine department absolutely hated me. They wanted me to be like the kind of book nerd that fit their cookie cutter mold of an athletic trainer, which was the very conservative, the, you know, stay at home on the weekends, don't go out and party. And I'm just the opposite. I'm full of tattoos. I was bartending on the weekends. But in return, I always had very good grades. And uh, maybe that was part of the reason I kept doing all the internships to try to like win their respect. I don't know. But um, as I was in the program, I knew I would never be a certified and licensed athletic trainer as a job because you just work way too hard. You really don't get any respect and you make no money. And you're basically always working in a training room, which is like the dungeon of wherever you are. No windows. I mean, it's it's not the best job. Sorry for any athletic trainers out there. But uh, but I really enjoyed what I studied. I just thought learning the anatomy, taping ankles, working with the athletes, traveling with them. It, it was uh, I was an athlete myself. So to be on the other side of it, it was really fun. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget just a funny story. Uh, my first prevention and care class. So that's like when we, that's 
the class that mostly exercise science students really struggle with, and we have to get an A in the class to move on to the to be accepted to the program. So um, I was studying pretty hard because my my professors weren't too fond fond of me, <laughs> and uh, so I remember the the director pulled me in and she said, "Hey, you know, uh, I just want to talk to you about athletic training." And I said, "Yeah, what's up?" She's like, "I don't think you um you, you I don't know if you really want to be in this field." I said, yeah, why? And I, I, I had finished my final, so I figured I bombed it. Yeah, I must have failed it. And she said, well, you know, we just um, we just see you and we see your personality and we know that you like to party and bartend and this and that. And, you know, maybe this is not the field for you. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So did I fail the exam? She's like, no, actually, <laughs> you got 115%. And I, and I asked her, I said, how do you get 115% on, a, on an exam? And she's like, well, you got all the questions right and the extra credit. I was like, oh, there was extra credit in there? She's like, yeah, we put extra questions in there to help the exercise science students not fail. And so that was kind of my entry to the fact that I really enjoyed studying sports medicine, but I did not want to be an athletic trainer. So not to make the answer too long, I then thought about doing my doctorate of physical therapy, but that would just take me more down the road that I, that I didn't want to go. I would have a great education, but that's not what I wanted to do. And so I was kind of lost with exactly what I wanted to do, but your typical college kid, I just kept studying and learning and figured it would somehow work itself out at the end. And then when I graduated, I was just kind of sitting around, you know, not knowing what to do. I think I was personal training at a gym just to meet some girls and make some money. And a friend called me and said, hey, man, have you heard of Satterbrook Tennis Resort? And uh, and I never had. And they're like, yeah, it's about 45 minutes away. Um, have you heard of Boletarius? And I, funny enough, I never heard of that either. And so there's a big misconnect between the sports medicine world and these tennis and these academies, which is kind of shocking actually. So either way, I said, no, I never heard of it. And he said, okay, well, I got you an interview. One of the guys just left and they need, they need a strength coach, but he has to have a physio background. So basically that means they want someone that can do very well with injury, but they want to pay him like a personal trainer. So yeah, you don't make much money as the job and they want to overqualify. So um, yeah, so athletic trainers often take those jobs because uh, physical therapists don't get asked to do them. And actually, at the end of the day, the physical therapists in many cases don't have the, the strength and conditioning background, nor would they take it because it's just not enough. So I went out there, I interviewed, I saw what I was going to do, and, and I was shocked. I mean, I walked into this small little training center that was 45 minutes away from my school that I never even heard of. And I saw Marty Fish on a bike, James Blake on a bike, Martina Hinkis on a bike, Justine Hennon being stretched. Um, Ricardo Barancas, uh warming up. I think was it Miri Kirilenko? I forget. I forget the Russian's name. But I mean, it was just like if a bomb were to hit that place, we'd move. We'd lose like over a hundred million dollars worth of athletes. And I didn't even know it was there. And yeah, it was wild. We had one of the top sports medicine programs out of Tampa, and here is an amazing academy. And there was just I was clueless to it. And uh, I quickly learned that there would be two different sides to the academy, the, you know, fun side where basically vis visitors come and the real side, I think it was Lake, Lake, Lakeside, where the, where the athletes train and where the academy is. And they said, this is what you will be doing. You will not be on the other side. You will just be with the athletes here. And your job is to do, this, to do the strength and conditioning, the, the fitness classes, whatever you want to call them. And when someone's injured, you're going to be the guy that we basically speak with. And you're going to really help pat. Uh, Etchberry, because when it comes to the stretching and you know a lot of the hands-on stuff, the dude was in his sixties or seven. I don't know how old he was at that time, but uh, he just—I mean—he just didn't have the time, nor the energy, nor the 
the desire to do that stuff. So I kind of moved straight to the top pretty quick because uh, we had Justine Hennon at the time when I started working there. And um, yeah, someone had to stretch her. And uh, an athletic training trainer's background is, uh, I mean, it's it's one-to-one with a physio when it comes to hand-on stretching. And so I just moved right in and, and, and started working with the players. So Hennon was there at the time. Martina Hingis was there at the time. And Marlene Weingartner, that was her name. So in English, it would be Weingartner. But uh, in German, we would say Weingartner. And uh, yeah, she was there also. I got in a bit of an argument with her the first week there. And then, um, yeah, she realized that <laughs> maybe I wasn't as crazy as she thought. And we ended up becoming good friends well, that's that's really amazing side note when you brought up germany i i uh, i keep thinking back to oktoberfest i actually went with a big group back in october and it was uh, amazing yeah back on point yeah yeah I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I couldn't help it but i, I just want to unpack a little bit this experience because it's obviously like incredible of, of the players you play uh, you are trained and everything but first off the interview process i'm curious how was that was that a tough process like what type of questions did they ask because this might help other uh, people who are yeah inter- yeah yeah, yeah. you want the real truth yeah yeah for sure i'll be i mean one thing i'm known for is just my brute honesty which is why i think i've never lasted at academies and i've worked for multiple federations and nothing has worked out and i actually was told by the hiring director of Cirque du Soleil that became a buddy of mine that I'm just too brutally honest to ever be able to basically work for them. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I'll be very honest with you. I was shocked the way in which it worked because I I got very lucky being uh, having that opportunity, but also my qualifications, my confidence and my experience matched the position that needed to be filled. What I was amazed with was when I worked at the sports academies, it's, you know, and I'll be very open. I, I spoke with this on the Adam Blitcher uh, podcast and it was kind of so raw. We decided to cut it just because we didn't want to really offend anybody. But when I was at those academies, the way they actually worked was, you know, they, they you would stay there. And once you kind of started getting in the way, you, you were a certain price. Yeah, it cost a certain hour to work with me or somebody else, one of the assistants. But then you had your head people. And if people started to want to work with the assistants like us versus the head people, then that started causing a problem. Because if I was $100 an hour and they were 300 well, once those people start switching, they're losing $200 an hour. And so basically what happens is you get the job. When I was there, maybe things have changed by absolute luck. And then if you interview, when you get applied for the, you get the job while you're working there, it, it was amazing to see what would happen. When I, when I was there, we had a guy named Zach Lamar. He was um, master's degree in exercise physiology, was also, I think, like top 10 um, division one college tennis, was an un- just, just a specimen. And um, he ended up leaving. I ended up leaving. And when we both left, he was replaced with just, a, yeah, a dad that did some fitness and uh, I was replaced with a national jump roper. So it was really shocking. So I think, I mean, I don't, I mean, it's probably not the answer you expected, but um, I think the best thing, what I tell everybody in my field is if you want to be involved in professional sports, I mean, I don't think they're all like that, but the best thing you can do is go to a university where those sports are. It's the most important thing. And I, and I tell kids the same thing when they want to move somewhere. If you come from 
Kansas City and you want to live in California, go study in California because that's going to be your best opportunity. And I got a bit lucky and chose University of Tampa instead of like I almost played the cross for Ohio Wesleyan. If I would have been an Ohio Wesleyan, I would have never accidentally stumbled upon Saddlebrook Tennis Resort, nor would I have I had the friends to do it because we got hundreds of applications a month to work at Satterbrook. And every single time someone got a job, they they gave the job to somebody they knew, regardless of the qualifications. Wow, that's that's incredible stuff, David. Really appreciate it. You probably don't know, but I am known for horrible puns. So I would say that the Academy should have skipped the jump roper guy. Did you get that, that pun? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you know, the thing is, is I mean, I, you know, and to stick up for her, because I don't know who she is, and I don't know if she'd ever hear this, and I'm sure she's a nice person. Sure. And a lot of times, you know, it goes back to that, like, PhD professor thing. You know, you can know everything in the world, but if you don't have a way to explain it to people, then you're also kind of worthless, right? Right. So I really think it should be an even mix of both. I think they should have the people that, you know, have the academic background, have the experience, but also somewhat of a personality to deal with people. But then, I mean, maybe this jump roper girl was amazing, and maybe she really connected with the kids and you know maybe she was there on a mental level i really i don't know her and i don't know i just know that's who replaced me and then maybe it would work but unfortunately a lot of those academies have just you know they really turned into financial machines Mm -hmm. and it was really just a bunch of business people looking at the bottom the bottom line basically and when you only look at the bottom line especially in sports, you, you, you can't do it. I mean, it's as simple yeah. as that. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, it, that's the problem with tennis in a lot of respects. It, like, if you just go for the money, you're going to lose people, you're going to lose the respect, and they're going to move to someone else eventually. But appreciate that honesty. And also very curious, David, about kind of the ins and outs of working at an academy, too. Um, so as far as like the training sessions with all these amazing players that you had, I mean, was there like, did you ever do group sessions with them or was it like mostly one-on-one or how did that kind of work? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, um, so we had about, I think it was three or four groups a day of the kids, right? And they were always in the, in the group fitness. And then they could also do like private lessons and private training, like strength and conditioning. And, uh, with the pros, the pros were actually really interesting. A lot of times the pros would, uh, either do it by themselves or they would be in groups. And a lot of times we would have, so James Blake and Marty Fish would often train with my friend Zach. So I'll, I'll speak of the ones that would train with Pat Etcheberry because Pat Etcheberry would also have a lot of football and, and let's just say football players coming in, like American football, because he was, uh, I think he was the strength coach at University of Kentucky or something like that. So he had a bunch of different connections. And uh, that was always really cool because a lot of times we would go out in the sand, uh, we had a sand pit, like a volleyball court, and we would go out there August one o'clock, you know, obviously choosing the hottest time of the day possible with the, the highest level of humidity. And we would have, you know, really big American football players, you know, basically getting ready for the draft or the combine or whatever. And we would combine them working with Martina Hingis and Justine Hennon. And it was really cool because I think for the for the really big football players, they realized, wow, you know what? These in this case, it was Justine Hennon and it, Justine Hennon and Martina Hingis. Usually, they would look at these two little girls as they would see them because they were three times the size of them, and just be like, man, you know, these girls really fight and they really hustle, and they don't they don't give a rat's ass who we are. And then in return, that you know, Justine Hennon, Martina Hingis would be like, God, these these guys are monsters, you know, and they also don't complain. And they are just as fast, if not faster than us. And they're three times the size. So a lot of times we they did individual stuff, but I was always 
I always thought the group stuff was cool because, you know, as I, I, I did a presentation for a big volleyball team today about the same thing we're talking about here, minus the tennis aspect. And, uh, and I said, you know, um, one of the most important things to remember is, you know, we, we're not playing against the machine. Yet we're playing against another person, especially in tennis. We've got, you know, it's, you're basically playing against one other person. So, you know, you don't need to be the best in the world. You actually just need to be able to beat the one person in the world when you play a tennis match. And that's the guy on the other side of the court. And I think the group fitness really helps with that because you can kind of start to fight and work together at the same time and compete in a natural way with someone you would never play against. I mean, some of these guys were you know, six foot three and I don't know, 200 plus pounds. When would Justine Hennon ever come a, a, come across somebody like that? But to be able to do fitness with them and see how they move, I think was fantastic. And I think it really helped them understand what hard work is. I mean, not that they weren't working hard and they needed a football player to realize that, but I mean, Justine Hennon was a, was a, was a beast. She was a machine. And same, same with Hingis. And maybe sometimes they wondered, yeah, you know, on a bad day, maybe we're just girls that play tennis. I don't know how they think. And if they thought that at, for one second in their life, when they trained with those massive football players, they realized right away that any thought like that in their head was wrong because they trained just as hard, if not harder than any of them. Yeah, that's very cool. And that reminds me of in our college, sometimes when we had to miss our own fitness uh, sessions because of class, we would train with other teams. And it was really cool to kind of see, you know, how much they hustled and, and just the different uh, mannerisms of them as well. So, you know, before we get into some more uh, awesome content questions, I do want to ask you a fun one. Which, you know, I don't know, it might be tough for you, but what are three things that most of the world does not know about David Grant? Ah, yeah, okay. So my entire childhood, I was, um, well, this is now on my website, so maybe people now know it, but maybe this is cool for people out there struggling with anything like a learning disability or anything like that, because I was basically diagnosed with ADHD, ADD, depression, bipolar disorder, I mean, everything under the sun. And it ended up really all being related to um, food. So I don't really know what it was, but uh, I'm not gluten intolerant by any means. But yeah, just by eating your typical bowl of cereal, milk, and pop tart breakfast as a tip as a normal American kid, it it absolutely destroyed me. So I was on a bunch of different medications, to being told that I would never be able to get off of them, and uh, now off. I mean, I don't take anything, so I'm 100% fine. I'm I'm 37 years old. I can focus, you know, I, I have no issues anymore. And it's one was 100% food related. So I think a lot of people don't know that about me. Second thing was, is I was always injured. <laughs> I had uh, in college, I had bilateral shoulder tendonitis, which you can imagine that's horrible because you have it in both shoulders and it was like impingement syndrome. Basically I had plantar fasciitis in both my feet, luckily not at the same time. Achilles tendonitis. I mean, I had every single injury possible and yeah, I don't want to say like Western medicine, that sounds a bit traumatic, but what I was studying couldn't fix me. Like I tried everything. And then uh, I kind of just was like, this is ridiculous. You know, like um, I'm a fit guy. I sure I have scoliosis, but who cares? I should still be basically pain free. And that was kind of the, the start to GTS. Like, how can I make myself pain free? Because I don't want to be in pain anymore. And then when I started figuring out the way and it started to work, like what I did and just I was blown away with by how basic the stuff that I was doing was and in uh, the results I was getting. So that would be number two. 
And number three is I can speak Arabic. <laughs> wow. That's pretty sick, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I forget most of it, and I got to be careful. I got to keep practicing. But yeah, no, I can definitely speak a good amount of Arabic. Uh, how did you uh, end up learning that? I was in uh, – so when I was in Egypt – uh, I was actually with the Tennis Federation. Right, right. And the Tennis Federation had a guy named Karim Hossam. He was like 15 at the time. And uh, my job with him was to basically travel around with him as his strength coach and physio, if you will. And uh, yeah, keep him injury free. And then work on all the tennis specific movement stuff with him because I did learn it all from Pat Etcheberry. I'm actually in the DVD with him for like two clips. <laughs> so I learned that whole process. And uh, yeah, that was my job. And uh, in the five and a half years I was in Egypt, um, Kareem, uh, Hossam went from, uh, yeah, no ranking at all. Cause he was like, he was 14, 15 at the time to being, I think his highest was 11 and 11 ITF. And he basically did it. Um, yeah. Injury free. And for the size of him and the strength that he had, uh, I mean, he should have played rugby, not tennis. And to keep him, uh, injury free the entire time was, was not, again, was not hard and it should have been hard. And it wasn't. And the way in which I applied like my techniques that fixed me worked for him. And again, I was just shocked by how much rocket science it was not. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so that's what brought me to Egypt. And, and I had a lot of free time on my hands and I was young and motivated. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to learn Arabic. And uh, once I realized how hard it was and how many people told me I wouldn't do it, I just got even more driven and more pissed and uh, kept trying. There you go. Got that fire in you. So as far as the nutrition, I mean, yeah, that's, that's incredible, you know, that there's so many kids today that, like you mentioned, are diagnosed with all these different disorders. And for you, all you did was you changed your diet and you ate better at least for your particular system so how difficult was that and maybe talk more about that transition to the different diet and keeping that up and then the the impacts on on your your health and life yeah i mean i it's it means a lot to me and i'll uh i mean I'll, I'll, i can remember the moment it happened like it was yesterday and um for me i i really value this laser sharp focus in being able i always say i want to be able to have a an academic PhD level conversation at any time, at any moment, whenever I want about any subject. And I want to have that mental clarity to be able to do that. And, and maybe it came a lot. Maybe that is, is a, is a insecurity for me from when I was young, when everyone's like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, you're learning disabled. You need to go to our learning center because I couldn't focus. And, uh, so I always just dreamed of having this mental clarity and I would get moments of it sometime and, and I wouldn't know why. And that's even worse. So um, I, I noticed when I would travel to Europe, which I did a few times for random, for random, whatever, for just different things, I would clear up a little bit, like my, my mental fog, if you will. And then I would come back to the States and uh, not really think anything about it, go back to the normal ways I would eat. And I would just kind of fall back into that mental fog, like this consistent mental fog. And uh, so I was in Egypt at the time. So I was 26 and I was still, I had cleaned up my diet a bit and it had gotten better. But um, yeah, I was, I was really struggling. I didn't know what I could do in order to get me to not like forget my name. I mean, I would get so foggy sometimes. I just wanted to sleep in the middle of the day. And um, a, a, a tennis player, a pro named Kareem Matmoon. So there's two Kareem Matmoons. Both were top 20 juniors, I think. Uh, and one was an older one. And he was 200 in the world. And um, then went to like 500 and at 28 years old, I started working with him again and he jumped from like 700 to 200 and was a very good guy. He owns like a CrossFit studio, I think in Romania or something now. 
And uh, yeah, and he told me, yo, I'm eating this paleo, uh, paleo, paleo. Uh, paleo, I, I think. Paleo. paleo, yeah, yeah. I always say it with the German accent now. <laughs> I'm eating this paleo diet. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, what's that? And he was like, yeah, you got to eat like caveman. And, and Kareem was a really healthy guy. And a lot of times he would catch on to these trends and feds. So I was like, okay, that's cool. You know, if he's doing it in three months, then I'll ask again. Maybe it actually makes sense. And so I, I flew home. So my, my family lives in Kansas City. And uh, my sister's husband was kind of like soft and chunky when I saw a picture of him because I hadn't met him yet. And then I went home and this guy's like, hey, Dave. I'm like, oh, hey, man fit guy didn't know who he was and all of a sudden i realized that was her husband and i was like whoa jeremy you i've never met him before so i was like what happened to you man like you're you're fit now and he's like yeah we'll talk about it later and i said oh okay cool and so you know a day goes by and i said hey what's up with 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 your food man and he's like well actually i eat this paleo diet and i'm like what is this so he explains it to me and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then right after we go out to like Hula Hands or, you know, like a like a, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Hula Hands is a chain or not. I forget. But we I went think out, it is. Yeah. yeah, like Applebee's or something, right? A little bit nicer. And uh, and I ate like normal. And I remember I just got, you know, hit with this flood of like, you know, food coma. And I he, he was like, yeah, I don't have that. That's why I eat this special way. And I remember I asked him, I said, well, well, what's so special about it? And he explained it to me. And I was like, so if I eat natural stuff, I'll feel better. And he's like, yeah. And again, I was like, well, that sounds pretty basic. And I was like, but my way of fixing people is, so maybe this is also just as simple too. And ironically enough, in college, when I took my nutrition courses, which were actually, we had an old Harvard professor teaching us them, they made no sense at all. And so I would always think that nutrition was something that was difficult to understand because I couldn't get it. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I didn't get it because it didn't make any sense. So I was like, okay, I went to the fridge, I opened the fridge, and I said, what do I have that has like no preservatives in it that would be paleo? I didn't even know what paleo was at that moment. And so I stuck, <laughs> I stuck a bunch of carrots in my mouth. I literally <laughs> ate like lettuce, like I just pulled the head, lettuce, like just lettuce from the head off. We had um, sunflower seeds that were like non-salted, like the most boring things ever, that were like just the seeds. I put a bunch of those in my mouth, and I remember it was just terrible tasting but i wanted to see like what would happen and so i just ate until like i really couldn't eat anymore because i kind of had that i'm hungry but not hungry feeling and uh yeah and i was just like okay well we will see what happens and i'll i'll do i'll never forget it about 30 minutes later i went from this like this coma daze feeling to just awake and i was like whoa that's the first time i did it like kind of on purpose and so I, you know, always had this joke that I should look like an underwear model <laughs> and all the girls were always, yeah, yeah, right. All the girls would be like, that's so arrogant. I'm like, no, I shouldn't be one, but I'm working out five days a week at this time. Yeah. It, like, how should I not be, you know, I should be like under 10% body fat. I should have like a six pack. And I always kind of had just like a little bit of extra weight around the belly button area. So then he said, yeah, well, that's because you're eating the carbohydrates and you should really try this diet because you burn more fat. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And what happened to me seems to happen to a lot of people. They start eating like nuts and seeds and all that stuff. And then like two days go by and they just realize that's all they've been eating because it's so, it's so, it's so satisfying. And uh, yeah, within like four days, I was laser focused the entire time. And I finally had that like underwear model body that I, you know, I, I lost that little bit of fat that I could never lose. And I didn't even try. And so from that day on, I was just like, 
I'm sold. I mean, I, I was literally laser focused all the time. Um, I felt great. I had gotten off all my medication anyways because I just thought it was pointless and I figured, you know what, it doesn't help me. So I may as well just kind of be confused sometimes and have this 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 brain fog and I'll find a way to deal with it. Like I, I couldn't imagine me living my entire life like that. And uh, so then when the paleo kind of, you know, the clean eating, if you will, really made me like clear and clean. I didn't have to, the Adderall, the Ritalin, the Wellbutrin, the Clonidine, the Tegretol. I mean, I remember all the names. I had kicked that shit. I, I, I got rid of that stuff in boarding school just because it wasn't doing anything. Wow, man. And then did you have... Yeah, kind of a dramatic story, but... No, that that's awesome. But and, and I applaud you for that, by the way. Congrats. And did you have any trouble sticking with it, though? Because I... I you know, obviously, like they design all these freaking like foods to be so tasty and the, to, for you to crave it and the, the short term pleasure of eating like uh, sweets and stuff. So did you have any trouble sticking with the diet, even though it made you feel better? So that's a good question. Um, that was one of the huge advantages of living in Egypt mm. because, you know, the sweets and all of the like food that, you know, we shouldn't eat is very cultural related so in the states it's like pop tarts or candy bars or you know dunkin donuts or crispy cream whatever and then when you go to egypt i mean they also have uh starbucks and things like that but they're not you, you just don't have them on every corner they're much more expensive and the cheap stuff is their cheap stuff so like you know that they don't have doritos they have things called chipsies and they just have a different taste it just tastes like a very cheap lays potato chip so being away from so many options definitely helped because I was always shopping within the Egyptian uh, um, market. I didn't have like a military base to go to or anything like that. So that really helped. And for me, like I said before, maybe it was an insecurity and it is an insecurity for me. I don't know. But I had just, you know, always been kind of looked at is that like idiot, basically the guy with the, you know, the guy that learns slow, that has a learning disability and just doesn't get things. And I always knew that wasn't me. Oh, he's good at sports and he can run fast, but he's kind of an idiot. That's kind of what I felt like everybody looked at me like. And um, and in boarding school, I went to a college prep school and it was very difficult for me because the level of education, you know, the standards are very high. And um, so when I found something that would give me this, this, this focus edge or this academic edge over my own body, for me, I was sold. It was not hard to go back because when, if I did like say, oh yeah, you know, Cinnabon, like I, you guys have Cinnabon in the States, right? Oh yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they would have those. I mean, they had them in Egypt. So of course they have them in the States. I would be like, oh, let's eat a Cinnabon. And I would eat it. And then I would get that headache mm. 20 minutes, you know, five minutes later. And I would just be like, uh, <laughs> like I wouldn't even know my name. Yeah. And then like maybe a good looking girl would come and chat with me. And I just think I sound like an idiot. So, um, so I had a few moments, I guess, where I did it and, um, I just was like, you know what, I, I don't, I don't care for this stuff. So I'm going to stay away from it. And what they say is true. The longer you stay away from it, the less your body needs it and the less you want it. Wow. That's, that's incredible stuff. And also, uh, David, my editor, uh, Omar is Egyptian, so he's going to fact check everything you just said. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but he, yeah, <laughs> cool, no, he's cool. going to love it. What's his, uh, oh. What's his? That's cool. What's his last name? Oh God, he's gonna kill me! Damn it! I, I I'm uh, I can't remember. Oh Salem, Salem, yeah. Ah, okay, Salem. So Omar yes, Salem, yes, yeah. Yes. Ah, cool. And he listens. He'll listen to the podcast. Oh yeah, right? yeah. He listens to him, edits him, so he's he's great. But uh, yeah, he's he's in Egypt, so uh, I'm sure he'll enjoy this. Oh, he is yeah, in Egypt. Yeah, he is. Okay, cool. So I say, I will Habibi Zayek. 
I, I call it Agabatar Arabi, so on acid. Awesome. Yeah, he can understand. Impressive. That. You still know it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some for awesome. sure. Awesome, for sure. man. Awesome. That's great stuff. So, uh, David, really enjoying this podcast, obviously. So, can you tell us about kind of your more, I guess, simple approach to injury prevention and fitness? Because I know we, we were talking about how a lot of times people will overcomplicate things and kind of intimidate everyday tennis players. So, can you kind of talk about your your more kind of simple approach to things that is effective? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, one of the one of the things I present on is uh, you know why Victoria Azarenka and your grandma should have the same test score. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of times I would say, okay, you know, I, I'll present in front of, let's say, a few hundred people. And there would be a woman, a grandma, like a different ages of people, right? And I'll point to each one of them and I'll say, okay, you know, um, how many uh, – it's, it's Mehrban, yeah? Mehrban? Uh, yeah, Mehrban. Yeah, right, right. Mehrban. Be like, Mehrban, how many, how many push-ups should you do in a minute to score excellent on a test? And you'd be like, yeah, I don't know, like 60. And I'd say, okay. Then I'd say, Mehrban, what about your dad? What about your girlfriend? What about your mom? What about your sister? What about me? And you'd say, yeah, I don't really know. And I'd say, okay, well, if we do this push-up test, should we do it before our practice, during our practice, after our practice, during preseason, after preseason, postseason, morning, evening, before we eat, all these different questions. And you're like, geez, man, I, I don't know. And I'd say, okay, cool. So what about internal rotation? Well, internal rotation of the shoulder should be 70 to 90 degrees for you, for your grandma, for your mom, for your dad, for your sister, for me, for my friend, for your friend, for everybody. It should be 70 to 90 degrees in the morning, in the afternoon, preseason, postseason, all the time. So Victoria Ozarenka, I used to always joke and say if 70 to 90 is kind of like what we say it should be, maybe the 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 higher level athlete should be a little bit more towards 90. So they have, you know, kind of more insurance in their shoulder, like movement wise, where my mom can probably get away with, you know, 70 because she plays tennis on the weekends. But if you know, I always say I have a doctorate in common sense because or well, I don't say that the students who I lecture do. And we say that because, you know, it, it just look at what the universe is trying to tell us. You know, we're asking going back to the how many push up questions should you do? It's such a complicated answer to answer. I mean, there's definitely an answer for it. It's a lot of answers in one sentence. But, yeah, there's definitely an answer for it. But look at how simple it is to discuss the internal rotation. So the, the range of motion. And I think within that 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 conversation, we need to look at the 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 ratio in which we're focusing on uh the the mobility and the flexibility and even now people argue with the word oh well flexibility you know that doesn't exist anymore and don't intertwine the words and I, and I think it's okay to intertwine the words I think mobility for me is using some type of device like a foam roller or a tennis ball or something that acts as like a massaging tool if you will to kind of loosen up that neurological tightness if you will and flexibility is stretching the muscle and if people say that stretching the muscle doesn't work okay Okay. I mean, when I stretch, it seems to work. So until we, you know, really have conclusive evidence that says 100% one thing, I think people need to listen to their bodies. And I think the universe is telling us, well, listen, guys, if the strength question is so hard to answer, but yet the internal rotation for this example of the range of motion is so concrete maybe we should also take a stronger look at that direction. And that's exactly what I did. I just started saying, all right, well, you know, like, you're a tennis player, your internal rotation doesn't exist. Like you have 10 degrees when I lie you down and I test it. But like when you hit a 
you know, let's say two-handed backhand or God forbid a one-handed backhand, you, you need some internal rotation. So, you know, we've got this thing called task dominance. And it's kind of like you 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 made toast, but you burnt the house down. Yeah. So you, you sure you made your toast, but you weren't so successful because now you don't have a house. And it's like the people that, well, I ran the marathon. Yeah. And now you can't walk. You know, like maybe we should have looked at what was going on before we had you complete this task. And I think a lot of times we would see these tennis players and say, oh, yeah, you've got shoulder pain. Well, it must be a weak rotator cuff. Maybe. But I mean, they're hitting so many tennis balls. Would they really have a weak rotator cuff? Maybe it's not firing firing correctly or actively you know, contracting, but weak, I, I never really subscribed to that. And I was like, well, okay, but let's take a look at your range of motion. Oh, that's interesting. You can go through, you know, all the Job exercises or the interaction or empty can exercises, fine. But then when I look at your range of motion and the minimum degree we want is 70 and you're at 25, well, maybe we should focus on that because that also might have something to do with it. And as we would start to open that range of motion up, problems that couldn't disappear were going away in 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 weeks to months and, and not coming back. And that was my experience. I have no more shoulder tendonitis. I have no more hip tendonitis. My scoliosis doesn't bother me. And my plantar fascia is gone. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Wow, that's incredible stuff. And and going on the internal rotation train, I was just curious, you know, for players who actually have this issue, like what were what were a couple of things that you have them do to to help with that to increase the the ROM, the range of motion? Yeah. So basically, uh, I'm a, I'm a big believer in you know you've got basically a, a weakness or a tightness, so to speak, right? And I I really believe that a lot of times it's not necessarily the weakness, it's more of maybe the muscles not actively doing its job. So I still believe in external rotation exercises, empty cans, they're they're a great warm up. I'll go into later with what I choose to do over doing therabands and things like that with real with with the on the athletic side. But what I have them do is I have them focus a lot on really just kind of loosening the muscles in that area. So a lot of times the the lats in the chest, for example, so the latissimus dorsi in the pec major and minor really can with their insertion and origin, where they connect to how they connect to the body, they can really kind of torque down on the shoulder. So they would be like a big, thick rubber band pulling your shoulder down. Well, if you want to hit a serve, then as your arm goes above your head, you've got these massive rubber bands preventing that motion from happening. So I would say, all right, well, I mean, you're trying to raise your arm above your head, but you've got these massive weights pulling it down. So that's the equivalent to me sitting you on the ground, taking three NFL football players, having them hold you down, and then me telling you to stand up. And when you're like, dude, I can't. I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> uh, there's three guys on me, so. And just me not caring. Yeah, it would be it would be ridiculous. I would never do that. So then if I'm like, all right, well, guys, you know, stop holding Meharpon down and let him stand up. And then you stand up, I'd be like, see, that wasn't so hard. And you'd be like, dude, you just got rid of three, me acting like I didn't even recognize that. So as we go into some exercises that loosen up that chest, 
and loosen up that lat, just basic foam rolling exercises. I just would usually have them raise their arm above their head and they can compare. Let's say they do their right arm and not their left. And I say, okay, you know, just raise both arms above your head like you're being arrested or well, or you're sticking your hands in the air or whatever. And they're like, oh my God, it's so much easier to raise the right hand. Okay, well, cool. Well, you just got a lot of mobility back. So now every single time you're going to, you know, go for the serve or go for the overhead, you just made your shoulder girdle or your shoulder joint or your body work a lot less to do the motion it needs to. Because as I always say, if a car runs out of gas, it stops moving. You don't go any farther. Like it's simple. But if you run out of range of motion, you find a way. I see people all the time. I got dudes at the tennis play, the tennis, um, club that are like 50 plus years old and they can't raise their arm above their head, but yet they still find a way to serve and hit an overhead. How is that possible? Yeah. Well, in three months later when they're complaining about shoulder pain, of course they have shoulder pain because the way with the body, the way the body works is if one joint can't do it, if one piece can't do it, something else will make up for it because at the end of the day, we used to run away from dinosaurs and, and, and do crazy things. So we, our genetics, believe it or not, are the cream of the crop from the toughest ancestors we've ever had. So our body will always find a way, but there's no free lunch. Yeah, you're good. The tax man will come and collect, as I always say. And, and that's 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 going to be the pain. So let's get the the shoulder for this case, you know, working correctly by getting the mobility and the strength in, in the strength of those muscles in a good balance so the tax man never comes. Gotcha, man. Gotcha. Great stuff there. And, you know, how much time do you think people have to devote? Because I think the uh, one thing that people talk about and complain about is, oh, I don't have enough time to stretch. I don't have enough time to devote to mobility exercises. What what kind of advice would you give to these people in regards to this problem? No, it's it's a good question. And I I try to always be like the person that empowers the people. (laughs) That sounds, but you know, I had a and I'll, I'll tell a lot of stories. Hopefully that's okay. Sure. I, I had a, a lot of people come to me and, you know, in Germany, I'm private, so I don't take insurance. I'm, I'm not cheap. And, uh, and my nickname is the butcher because, you know, a lot of times the stuff that we do does not feel good. I'm sure you can remember your athletic trainers, you know, the massage and the mobilizations and all that stuff doesn't feel good. So a lot of the people that come to me are not lazy people. Um, one in particular was a um, he basically has two PhDs and a, a PhD and a, he's a medical doctor, runs one of the hospitals here. He's about 10 years younger than all of the others. And he has a family of four. And he was just like, you know what, dude, he had a shoulder problem. He's just a doctor, but he had his shoulder issue. Yeah, obviously he's not in the sports field. He's a neurologist. And he said, uh, what can I do? And I said, well, this is what you need to do. And he said, yeah, you know, I've been given rehab exercises before. And, you know, unfortunately I'm lazy. And I'm like, Okay. I mean, I just told you his background. I don't think this guy's lazy. And, uh, and I said, well, okay, you know, Dr. Canole, you might be lazy, but if you were given exercises, did they work? And he's like, um, no, not really. I said, all right. So if you were given something that didn't work and you're a ridiculously busy guy and you don't have any time for extra stuff and you continue to do something that doesn't work, I wouldn't call that lazy. I would call that dumb. And he was like, excuse me? And I said, yeah. Well, why? I mean, does that make any sense? It doesn't work and you continue to do it? No, of course not. So a lot of the times the athletes I run into to make that, to give context to that story are like, yeah, I don't have time to do that stuff. Well, the problem was is often they were shown like 45 minutes of stuff that 
I mean, it's not bad for you, but maybe it just wasn't very helpful for them. And maybe it didn't solve the problem when really we could show them 10 to 15 minutes of stuff that would be a thousand times more efficient and actually make them right away feel better and be like, man, this is what I want. And you get the automatic reward. Then all of those players, I've never had one that had a problem. Awesome stuff. So as far as like, uh, I know there's the billions of exercises out there. Can you just give us like two or three exercises that you have given to amateur players in particular where they've implemented it and then they've been like, wow, I feel so much better now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if there's any way I, I can give you some information after where I can link some yeah, videos together, yeah. I can definitely do something like that for anyone out there that would be interested. For sure. But basically I've got, what I do is I've got a, a, a like a lat roll a way in which I have them roll the lat, which is uh, just a little bit different. I have them make sure they keep their hips down. I have them go through a couple different movements, so a couple different directions of movement. So it's a bit more effective and it, it hurts a lot less. And then I have a three-way kind of like chest uh, front of the shoulder. One I use with a, a ball that's about 12 centimeters big. And uh, then I use one on the lateral side of a tennis ball. So I really just go kind of all over their area with um, – with mobility exercises. And then if they're missing internal rotation, I will either do a special bicep stretch with them, which I can include all these videos, or I just have them basically stretch their internal rotate, the internal rotation of their shoulder. But the one, so that's how I get them prepared. Yeah. And I really just have to, they'd have to watch the videos, which I can give. That's not a problem. But to take a deeper answer into that, I would say to most of them, they need to be able to do handstands. And uh, that is a really interesting topic in tennis. Because a lot of, even Victoria Ozarenka told me with tricep dips off a bench one time, oh, I shouldn't do that because it's bad for my wrist and I'm a tennis player. And I was like, well, actually, it's good for your wrist. And if you can't do it, you won't be a tennis player for very long. So that was also kind of my, one of the reasons my career in pro sports is always a bit short. I'm usually a bit too brutally honest, but I believe that wholeheartedly. And I told the German Tennis Federation the same thing. I said, listen, I said, it's, you know, if everybody is an athlete and then at the end, they're a specialist and what they choose to specialize in is their sport. So Serena Williams, when she's running from singles line to singles line or doubles line to singles line, whatever, across the court with two hands on a racket, I would disagree. I would say, you know, I think she should sprint like an athlete and she's got a massive racket in her hand. So that would allow her to really gain a lot of speed because of her lever arm. And then when she gets closer to the ball, prepare with her other hand to hit that ball. Now, many people would say, oh, well, that's not possible. I was told that often at Satterbrook. And then you would just watch these players on the court and you would realize, well, they can do it. So why can't somebody else? And so I think the tennis player, they really need to become athletic and if they can do a handstand, that means one, they have the shoulder strength and how to do it. Two, they learn the wrist placement of a handstand because a lot of them lean towards their fingers and put a lot of pressure on their wrist because it's a way to kind of cheat. But then that's why their wrists start to hurt. So it's a great way for a strength coach or physio to see a weakness in the kinetic chain. And finally, it teaches them two things. It teaches them, one, to be an athlete. And number two, which I think is a very interesting topic, is I have nothing wrong with the TheraBand exercises, external rotation, empty can, which is the supraspinatus exercise. I think those things are fine and they're great. But I went into a tennis 
tennis club with about 500 players. And I had a theory that we didn't really need to use those things because the club was overtaken by them. And I thought, well, you know, back in the day before TheraBand or whoever was, was, was created, what did everybody do? Like, did we have just as many shoulder injuries? And my guess was probably not. But why? Maybe because the guys were climbing trees, they were climbing ropes, they were just more active. Yeah, when we were kids, man, we ran around and drank out of the hose. And so I started thinking, I'm like, well, you know, like, what if someone does like a bear crawl or an inchworm or a crab walk like we used to do as kids or a handstand? Well, I my theory was the brain would kind of chime in and say, all right, well, the handstand, we basically need, you know, some the deltoids and the, you know, the stronger muscles to hold us up. But also I thought the nervous system might say, yeah, but you know, we also need these small muscles underneath on our shoulder, the rotator cuff. So if the nervous system is then like, yo, we need these, these muscles right now to fire and they start firing them on their own, you are now working your rotator cuff, not with some elastic band and kind of an isolated motion that your body probably really doesn't understand, but in a natural movement way that is not only firing the rotator cuff, for example, in a bear crawl or an inchworm or a handstand, but it's also activating the entire body and making it work together. Wow. Wow. Very insightful. I've never heard uh, of that, but that, that's why I brought you on because I know you have a lot of great insight into, you know, straightforward things that we need to really consider. Uh, maybe different from what we're thinking, but we need to at least give it a try for sure. And David, I, you know, I listened to your podcast episode with Adam. Uh, Adam's a friend and he does great work. Uh, I was curious uh, because I, I remember the story that you gave about like approaching a, a pro player and, and him like eventually getting scared and running away after he felt some pain. But could you give us like either that story or a different story of like approaching a, a player and, and giving them your insights and, and maybe it being funny like that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I mean, that was, uh, God, what was his name? Santiago. Santiago. Uh, was Santiago Gallardo, I think. Yeah, yeah. it might have been. I was at the Mercedes Cup and uh, yeah, I mean, I had a, how oh, there was a, an amazing picture where if you just Google his name, he's on the court and he's leaving the court. And this is an older picture. He's by himself and his shoulders could not be more rolled forward. Like it's mind blowing. I now have the picture and I use it all the time in presentations because I was, I was just shocked. And uh, that's what he looked like on the court. And so somehow I got in a conversation with him, which is pretty funny because he's he was 30 in the world at that time. And, uh, and I was just there for a, uh, the Mercedes cup in Stuttgart has also a sports medicine convention there at the same time. And I get some continuing education units there. So I was only there walking by and I saw this guy and I just was like, wow, that's unbelievable. This guy's absolutely broken. We have some of the best physios and doctors like 200 meters away. And there's absolutely no connection. Like, unbelievable screw that i'm gonna say something to him and i just spoke up and i said hey man dude you know like how, how do you hit a tennis ball with shoulders like and he was like what do you mean i'm like dude you're looking at like shoulder surgery in five years maximum and he was like what why and so then i just explained it to him and he was nice enough at first to be like dude can you walk with me i said yeah sure not a problem so we're walking through and i'm just kind of chatting with him and uh, telling him what's up and then uh the 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 physio from I don't know if it was ATP or whoever it was, but he was the acting physio for the Mercedes Cup at that time. Saw me chatting with him and was a bit rude. 
and kind of kept trying to break up the conversation. Like, hey, man, you know, you should come in and put your jacket on. And like, I mean, you know, Santiago is not 12 years old. I think he knows he needs to put a coat on. And oh, it's a little bit chilly, you know, you should come eat your peanut butter sandwich, like whatever, right? And then finally, I was just like, yo, is, is there a problem? I didn't know it was the physio. And I was like, do we have an issue here? And he's like, oh, no, I'm just a physio. And Santiago stepped up. He said, no, no, he's the physio here. He just wants to help me. And, you know, he's just trying to uh, yeah, to get me to go in and do my stuff. And then the guy turned to me, the physio, and was like, yeah, and it's not really your place to be speaking to our athletes. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? And he was like, yeah, you know, I don't know basically like who you are, but something, something, something. And again, I'm known for my honesty. So I just turned to him. And I said, well, listen, dude, I said, if anyone wants to be honest, I said, it's unbelievable what you're doing because you've got a guy here with shoulders that are some of the worst I've ever seen. And you don't even address the issue or you haven't even seen it to deal with it. I said, so if anyone's doing any major mistake here, I would say it's you by limiting his career, by not telling him what's really going on with his shoulders. <laughs> the guy's like mouth dropped open and Santiago was like, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. And I said, no, it's totally fine. So then Santiago asked me, he said, okay, well, what should I do? And I said, well, lie down. This would probably be my mistake that I would not do again uh, because his shoulders were, his, his, his capsule was so tight. It was obvious. And so when you lie someone down on their back and you go into the, you know, stereotypical physio internal rotation stretch, so their arms at 90 degrees, you block the shoulder with your elbow or your arm, whatever. So it doesn't pop forward as you roll the arm forward. Um, yeah, it popped forward and I blocked it. Yeah. So the part of your arm that goes into your shoulder, I just blocked that motion and it hurts because you're stretching the capsule. It's almost like a joint mobilization. And he was just like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Bye. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I was like another athlete that's just really afraid. And, uh, and I said, okay, dude, I was like, you know, you can run away. Like that's totally fine. But you know, it's, it's your career that's going to be hurt. Not, like not mine. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, it'd be great to, you know, be the star physio that, you know, makes a percentage of whatever he has, but chances of that are slim to none. But the fact of him, you know, making it to the top in the world and staying there with, you know, those shoulders with that, you know, that, that, the, the capsule like that, I mean, the, the chances are just super slim. And if he does do it, then I mean, the chances of him, you know, or an athlete like that in their fifties and sixties, not having problems is, I mean, I, I would, uh, yeah, I put my money on a lottery ticket before that. Jeez. So, yeah. So he just kind of told me to piss off. And I said, okay, well, you know, good luck. Man. Well, Santiago, if you're listening, I hope that you change your approach to, to everything. Yeah, maybe he has a different version of the story. So if you're listening, man, sorry about that. I'm sure you're a good guy, but yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Straight up. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm really glad. It's really nice of you to just step up, David, and t to tell people about like their issues that they're having or will have. And so kind of on that topic you know, like for amateur players, like let's say if we're videoing ourselves, which we should be doing, like what what are some signs, like obvious signs, like if we were to look at ourselves to where we should, we should know that, oh, like there might be some problem areas, like imbalances, like how can you kind of maybe self-analyze the, these potential issues down the line? I mean, I think, uh, you know, we have, uh, what, I go blank on it right now with a fancy little name we have for it, but basically we, you know, we have movement. So, you know, like take the guy at work, you know, you can, your, your posture is good when you walk. Okay, great. But now let's put a backpack on you. So there's stress. 
Yeah, there's a load. Can you now walk with good posture with that backpack? Okay, well now let's make you, uh, let's increase the demand. Let's make you go up the stairs. Okay, well now your heart rate's gonna increase. Okay, now let's make you late. So you gotta go even faster. Okay, now your boss is pissed because you're late. So now you've got stress. And so yeah, your posture is great when you walk, but when we add a load, the backpack, speed, the stairs or, you know, cardio, increase your cardio stairs, speed, you're late. So you got to run. And the fact that your boss is pissed, stressed. Well, now let's take a look at your posture. And that is what tennis players need to do when they record themselves. They need to watch themselves play in many different facets of the game. If you will, they should look at themselves in practice and say, okay, well, how do I look like when I'm playing in practice? Of course, you're going to get tired. Your body is going to break down, but again, you're not playing against the machine. You're playing against another person. So if you can break down less than the other person on the other side of the court, not only will you most likely win that match, but if you can limit the amount in which you're breaking down, you're going to limit your own injuries. Because if you're hitting a tennis ball and by the you know third set, you're so tired that you can't stand up straight, but you're, you know, like you're, you're really breathing heavy. Well, your shoulder, your shoulder mechanics are going to change. And those shoulder mechanics could be the onset of the impingement syndrome that you have. And that is why the, the fitness of the tennis player is crucial along with the mobility and everything else. And I think the tennis players now are starting to realize how important it is because, you know, impingement syndrome, these injuries don't come from the first set. These things come from the third, fourth, fifth set, however, however long you're playing. So as that player is recording himself, I always say they should record themselves in a practice. They should see, you know, like what one set looks like, the second set, third set. And as they increase their fitness and they work on their technique, they should do it again so they can see if, you know, the the contact point of the ball is not late, if they're, you know, hitting clean, they have clean strokes, if they're moving well, and they should be very aware of that. But then they should also do it in a match setting because like in, 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 in a proper match, not a practice match, because in a tournament, you're now adding stress into that event and stress will really physically tax your body even quicker doing the exact same thing you're doing during practice and if any athlete is listening to this or any tennis player they will know and Maribon, you played college tennis man you would realize the difference between a high level match when you're out there on the tennis court playing for your team or when you are at practice your practice is hard but if it's a very very important match you realize that your lungs get tired quicker you're not breathing from the diaphragm you're doing more panic breathing which even adds escalates everything even more and by the end of it you're not only mentally done, you're physically exhausted. And, and many times those matches were actually easier than what you were doing in practice. Yeah, for sure. Great stuff. And and on that note, as far as like nutrition, what tips do you have as far as when, during matches um, or even practices? Like what type of intake should we should we have as far as like liquids and, and snacks and whatnot? You know, that's a good question. I'm going to kind of detour from answering that, a detour from answering that, because uh, my business partner right now is the strength and conditioning coach. And I, we chose to separate a bit our nutritional paths. I work because we have a lot of lifestyle clients. So a lot of military, a lot of high level CEOs, a lot of uh, non like professional sport athletes also. And I work with them more in the lifestyle um, lifestyle nutrition because I'm a, I'm a big ketogenic guy. But um, ketogenic for athletes is very difficult. And I think a lot of times 
um, maybe not a good idea. So I left it to my business partner to really specialize in the high end pro athlete, what they should be eating while they're training. So I would be giving probably outdated information. The one thing I will say is I think when people are, you know, living their normal life, like when they're off the court, you know, when they're maybe not during a very heavy um, tennis season, they need to listen to their body because um, we have been sold a very interesting story about unsaturated and saturated fat. Um, if you le read a lot of the research that is more investigative journalist driven and not, not governmental driven, you will realize that actually that saturated fat, I'm going to see how I say this, saturated fat is actually much better for us than we thought it was in dairy. Dairy is just another form of saturated fat. Now, sure, if you're going to drink milk and all of those things, you, you want it to be as organic as you can. A lot of the allergies that people have towards dairy, I don't think is actually dairy they have the allergy to. I think it's all the, the stuff in the dairy, the hormones from the cows and this and that. But the simple question is, you know, with saturated fat and unsaturated fat is polyunsaturated fat, so vegetable oils, are probably one of the scariest things you can eat. So you should really research that stuff. Monounsaturated fats like uh, vegetable oil, I'm sorry, like olive oil, olive oil, those are fine. But there is nothing wrong with butter, fat, ghee, coconut oil. These are the fats that if you really research, I mean, I tell your readers to, to Google it themselves. You know, Nina Teichholz does a lot of good writing on it. So it's Nina, N-I-N-A, Teichholz, T-E-I-C-H-O-L-Z, I think. And uh, she was an investigative journalist and she did a lot of research into it. And she and she states a lot of her, uh, she, she writes, how do I say it? She um, footnotes a lot of her work. And um, so what I would tell athletes is don't be afraid of saturated fat. And with milk, which I tell all my athletes is milk is just another opportunity to get saturated fat. So do you need dairy? Sorry, not milk, dairy. Do you need dairy in your diet? The simple answer is no. But it's an opportunity to get saturated fat. So when all these athletes are using coconut milk and, you know, almond milk, that's fine. But what is the difference between raw milk, so unpasteurized milk, which I you can get in Europe, but I don't think you get it in the States, and milk and organic pasteurized milk. One is a raw food and the other one is processed. And that's crazy to think about. That expensive organic milk you are buying from the grocery store is a processed food. Yeah. And so when we are putting coconut milk in almond milk, thinking that we're being healthier, the only thing we are doing is putting more processed stuff into our drink. So I like doing coconut milk and almond milk sometimes just because it tastes good. But when I use those things, don't kid yourself. You are not being healthier than using real milk. If you choose not to use dairy, that's fine. You don't need it. Just understand the use of dairy in a diet is for saturated fat. That's what the, that is the history of when we used it. When we were farmers and we needed to eat more saturated fat to get more energy, we used dairy because it was a we could we could use it as an alternative to always eating meat. Wow, super interesting stuff, David. Really appreciate that. As far as athletes who want to strengthen their serves, because uh, this is like a huge thing, obviously for everybody. What type of advice would you give on players to do that? I mean, obviously from the 
fitness perspective? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, uh, the, I, I joked about this on Adam Blitcher's podcast, and it's like the most like meathead way ever, but it really is true, and that's your chest. Um, we we jokingly did it at uh, at Saddlebrook with um, like all the guys that were working there because you know you're Florida, good looking girls. We're all you know coaches now, so many of the players don't play anymore as coaches. And guys like me, you know, I just want to stay fit. So we would always kind of do like the beach body workout because it's Tampa. And um, what the guy, so then a lot of the players started doing it with us. Oh, you're doing like decline chest press and chest press and incline. We're going to do it with you. And what we noticed right away was as they would get their chest bigger, so to speak, they would start hitting a heavier ball. And so I kind of started watching it and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. Their ability to hit a deep, heavy ball and keep it on the baseline started, it started, started lasting longer yeah they were their ability to do it was it was just easier so now they were able to as their chest got stronger what they would hit at like 90 percent of their power they would hit they could do it like 70 percent. so then imagine what they could do at 90 percent. and so in the backhand we didn't really notice much of a difference but in the serve we did and with kareem Amun, the older one in egypt that's how okay he was Thinking of retiring at 28, and I really need to get my numbers correct. So Omar, man, correct. You definitely fact check me on this one. But I believe he went from, I don't know, something like 700 in ATP to the end of the year, he was 200 something. And he made it to the qualities of the Australian Open. And all I did with him was just got him a bit fitter. It's Egypt is a clay country. Yeah, tennis. And um, I watched him play and I realized that his forehands on hard court would have been a winner. But on clay, they slow down a little bit. So the player and you can slide forever and they had really beat deep back ends behind the baseline. So everybody was kind of able to cheat his forehand. His backhand was good, but you always just had that opponent slide kind of block it, get that really long high return, and then the game is back to neutral. Yeah, the the, the advantage is gone, basically. And same with the serve. So I approached him. I said, dude, let's, let's get you stronger, and I think this will make a big difference. And he fell in love with chest press and uh, kind of pushing everything. And next thing you know, his serve got a bit stronger. So the almost aces became aces. His forehand, forehand got stronger. So his almost winners became winners. And, uh, yeah, and his backhand was his backhand and, and, you know, and that was enough. I mean, you know, you guys know how tennis goes. I mean, you know, 30 all or deuce is, I mean, it's a big difference if you go down or if you go up 40, 30, and if you've got a big serve and the confidence, man, that's one game. And if you hold that game and then you break him, I mean, not only did you just break him, but you probably just broke his confidence. So it was just such a small little piece that made a difference. And then I carried it on to everybody, every other athlete I worked with and tell a bunch of dudes that want to meet girls or or guys if they're gay i don't know to do a bunch of bench press and they're not gonna they're, they're not they're not gonna argue they're okay that's fine and every single one of them just started hitting the ball the forehand and the serve especially so much harder wow wow that's really really interesting stuff there to keep in mind for everybody out there so david what is one concept that you had initially believed in your career that you you know as you learned more and 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 had more experience in your craft that you actually changed your perspective about your mind about strength and conditioning because you know so many physios and uh, people that studied exercise science and whatever get into the field of strength and conditioning and i think it's okay to a certain point because we're able to help a lot of people become better but at the end 
my my business partner was on the like was an Olympic weightlifter, so not for the Olympic team of Germany, but that's the sport he did. He was a foot an American football player, so he's German, but he played American football, so not soccer. And he was a running back, so he really learned, you know, the the strength and conditioning of power and strength. And I think a lot of us don't learn that unless we study strength and conditioning. And I think, you know, the technique with a clean, the technique with a jerk, the technique with a snatch, if we want to do one, you know, the intervals and the breaks that we need to really focus on the power stage and the strength stage. I really underestimated the importance of that. And, um, and I think so many athletes start from such a base level that working on the muscular endurance really improves them all so a lot of people like me are like oh i'm a great strength coach but then once they hit that wall guys like me i'll be honest i couldn't take them farther yeah because i didn't have that real education in pure strength pure power and olympic lifts and in my in my business partner did so i turned it over to him and what he's done with our players has just been amazing so one thing i have learned is the importance of understanding the true components of strength and conditioning and being able to teach that high end level of the Olympic lifting of the, you know, of what the contact sports needs, what you see in football, what you see in rugby, what you see in ice hockey. And many of us can't do that. And if we can't, and we want to stay in the field of strength and conditioning, we need to learn how to do it. Or like me, I said, okay, you do it. I stepped apart. So that was, that's what I learned was how much I underestimated the importance of that portion of strength and conditioning and how much respect we should give those individuals that are able to do it, but yet communicate it to all athletes. Awesome stuff, Dave. Appreciate that. And so as far as educating ourselves, whether we're actual coaches or if we're players, what are three books that you would recommend that we read that will really give us a better insight into fit tennis, well, fitness, injury prevention, or, or anything else in, in the related fields? Okay. I, I, I read quite a few books. I drive an hour and a half a day or yeah, and like an hour and a half. So I do audiobooks. So I finish like one book a week wow. right now. So I have go through the books here. Yeah, I finished like 27 last year. Awesome. <laughs> I think for me, I will give, I'll give a few. In the field of learning about your own body, like movement, I would say uh, Kelly Start, uh, the CrossFit physio basically, which is now like one of the most famous physios in the world and a very, very nice guy. He, he has a book called The Supple Leopard. That is a handbook for anybody. I mean, anyone that wants to do anything with their body, if they, they want to stand up from a chair to if they want to win Wimbledon, should read that book. He has another one about running, which I think is important because he does a very good job explaining how heel striking is really a disaster. And we should be running in shoes that don't have a whole bunch of support. We should support our own body ourselves and how we should land. So I would say the two from him for sure. So that's uh, I think it's Ready to Run is one is his running book. Uh, the supple leopard, supple leopard, uh, is his, uh, like basically physio book, which is written for everybody. And I would say on nutrition, because it's a very interesting read is, um, Nina Teichholz. Her book is the big fat surprise. I believe that's what it's called. And then there's like how dairy, meat and butter belong da, 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 on our diet. And she does a very good job going through a lot of the, um, the controversy that we have learned within our nutrition. 
So I would say those three for movement and nutrition and one that I just think everybody should read so they can kind of just open their own mind and understand what's really going on out there would be Scott Carney's book where he uh, he wrote it about basically Wim Hof. So I think it's called Extreme Cold. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his, ah, Wim Hof. What's the first name of uh, Wim Hof? Yeah, it is Wim. Wim's his first name, Hof. Oh, Wim's his first name. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. got it. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, I think I've heard about him from another podcast. Yeah, Tim yeah. I was, um, I, I was basically sick every like once every three months in, in Germany when I first got here. And um, I started doing his program. And now I can, you know, I sit in ice water outside when it's snowing and mm-hmm. wow. I don't get sick. I've been sick in over two years. I mean, it's unbelievable what that guy's done. And the cool thing with the Scott Carney book is he doesn't go just into Wim Hof. He goes into the cold therapy, the idea behind it, you know, really what Wim has been able to accomplish and just, you know, really the entire field of coldness and breathing, if you will. But also he initially was going to write the book to call Wim Hof out as a fake. And um, he ended up realizing that he wasn't wow. and turned the book around and wrote it basically as a supporter of Wim Hof. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, good stuff. Very interesting guy there. So David, can you tell us a bit about GTS, Grand Training Systems, and what that's all about, the purpose of it, and where we can find out more about it? For sure. So basically, Grand Training Systems is just, uh, I needed a cool name for uh, if I ever wanted to start my company. And uh, I worked with Pat Etcheberry, Etcheberry Sports Performance. So it was ESP. And so I just said, okay, I'll do GTS. Yeah, that, that was really the birth of it. And I just hit, you know, seen a lot of things that I did not like within the field of training athletes and working with people and dishonesty and this and that. And I just kind of, you know, just took a little, you know, like a memory bank of all the things that I would do different. And that was the beginning of GTS. And then with my own personal experiences of, you know, ankle, basically tendonitis of everything you can imagine, food allergies, being misdiagnosed, you know, finding breathing, finding meditation, finding cold therapy, um, and, and being able to really turn my life around and then do it with other people very easily. I just said, you know what, dude, I want to create a company where I just focus on, you know, taking people out of pain and letting people that don't have pain learn how to optimize their life. And that was the birth of it. Awesome, David. Appreciate that. And so, I first of all, I've really been enjoying speaking with you, and I really appreciate the time that you took today to, to chat with me on the podcast. I want to ask you one more question about uh, tennis players and fitness, which is, what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Ah, yeah. Okay, I'll give you a very good one. Become a better athlete. It's as simple as that. Yeah, because if, you know, Marabon, if I were to clone you, so I double you and you guys are obviously the same person. And then I take one of you and I make him, I work with him on how to move, on how to do handstands, on mobility. I make him a better athlete. Yeah, I make him move better. And he goes back and he plays you. Who's going to win? He will win because you guys both have the same tennis. But now he moves better. He moves more efficient. He moves cleaner. So he needs less energy. He needs he needs less energy to move. He needs less energy to be fast. He needs less energy to hit a harder ball. He's able to get to the serve, you know, hit the serve harder. He can get to a drop drop shot faster. So when he gets to a drop shot faster, he's able to get better behind the ball better. Or maybe he just takes the drop shot as a as an approach shot because he was so fast. So if you have two tennis players that are the exact same, the better athlete 
nine times out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, will always win. So while everybody's focusing on their tennis, also do the same, sure. But realize you're, you're, the, the difference you can make in getting better at what everybody else is practicing is slim to when you go to the blue ocean, if you will, and you start working in an area that everybody's forgetting. Yeah, beautiful. Love that, David. I mean, you know, even just getting to one more ball, making one more shot, like that's going to win you more matches. You know, you have all these matches that are so close. They're 8-6 in the third set tie break. And imagine being able to be a little bit more consistent and last a little longer. You know, that's going to make such a great difference in your in your game. Appreciate that, David, as well. So where can we follow you on social media and also in person? Yeah, so um, I've got my, my website is the best place to find everything. So it's GTS, so like Grant Training Systems, gtsgermany.com. I've got a link to all of my pages there. I'm quite active on YouTube, so it's Grant Training Systems. I'm quite active on Instagram, and I want to say it's GTS Germany. I changed it a month back, uh, changed my name, so I believe it's GTS Germany. Uh, the Instagram is a bit funny. I'm kind of playing around with trying to find my voice. So I was shirtless for a few weeks the other day, and now I'm putting my shirt back on. And But it's always about movement, and the, the content is always good. I'm just kind of trying to find my voice. I've also got to not to give myself a, a shameless plug here go for it but um i was going to speak with you marabon after um i've got a bunch of programs like shoulder program hip program back program uh, elbow program all these things where i my programs really focus on the movement the strength and conditioning everything we've spoken about here and um i was going to give like a massive discount to everybody that would type in i don't know your last name or something so we can discuss that after Perfect. and then you can let your you can let your listeners know that if they want something for the next like 10 days or whatever or forever i'll just give you the code and they can always have that opportunity to get something appreciate that david we'll definitely hook that up uh, to our listeners and thank you so much for doing that i didn't even know you were going to so that's amazing uh, and we'll definitely have all the links that we discussed today and including the links to the programs on the show notes page so david i mean what can i say i really enjoyed this one thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us and for all your honesty, we need more of this in the sport so that we can advance and make the necessary changes instead of staying stagnant and not improving. So, David, thanks so much for coming on to the Tennis Files podcast, and I'm uh, I'm sure that we'll speak again soon. Yeah, dude, thank you, man. I mean, the only way we get to you know the these stories out is by people like you doing podcasts and, and asking the questions. So, yeah, I appreciate it on my end also, and uh, yeah, I'll be excited to hear how it sounds when it when it's done and when it's out. Awesome. Thanks, David. All right. I hope you enjoyed my interview with David about injury prevention and movement mechanics. David, as you heard, has great enthusiasm for the game and for helping people become more fit. And I really appreciate David uh, taking the time today to come onto the show. And I also would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to your favorite podcast app and clicking the subscribe button. And for iTunes, you can just go to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes and uh, the subscribe button should be right there. And all the links for today's show will be at tennisfiles.com slash 79. So any uh, sort of resources or courses or anything like that will be on the show notes page there again at tennisfiles.com slash 79. And I'll leave you with a quote as I often like to do at the end of the show. Today's quote is once again by an anonymous person, but I like it and it's very applicable to tennis as well. And the quote is, lead with your strengths not your weaknesses. 
It's a great quote there. All right. Thank you so much once again for tuning in to the podcast. And I uh, appreciate all your help and support and the fantastic emails. I really, really love hearing from you all. And I'll do my best to continue to keep pumping out great episodes and helpful episodes with content to help you improve your tennis game. And I'd be happy to hear your feedback You know, on anything that you want to learn about. Uh, I, can, I can make that happen. All right. Well, I hope you all have a great week and month and year of course and uh, happy new year to all of you as well and i will see you on the next episode of the tennis files podcast take care everyone thanks for listening to the tennis files podcast for more tips to help you improve your tennis game visit tennisfiles.com